Hey, Dame. What's good? You know, I was curious. We've been home for a minute now recording remotely. And, you know, I just feel like I've had so much more time on my hands. I've been listening to more music, watching more shows, engaging with more podcasts. And I was curious, have you listened to any podcasts recently? Nope. Still no. I I make this and I watch things. And I love all you podcast listeners because you make this work possible. (laughs) But all you other podcasters, don't ask me. I have not heard your podcast. I'm really sorry. It is no hard feelings. I don't listen to my own. (laughs) If you were... If I were to though, a podcast. I know where I would go. Where would you go? I'm going to check out Overcast. Overcast is an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Yeah, I love independence. I love free things. This sounds like where I'm going to have to go uh, step into this game of podcast listening. Podcast for the people. Get it for free on the App Store. Let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back. Hey. Well, hello. We are here. This is Ergo. I am Damon. I'm Kiss. We are going back. This is another one of our once a month series of going back through the Ergo archives and giving you special conversations that you may have missed but need not to miss out on. This month's Go Back episode is from November of 2016, and it features our coverage and experiences at Standing Rock. In early November of that year, uh, myself and Damon's sister, Ergo alum Christiana Ray Colon, as well as a whole other squad of Chicagoans, got in the car and drove to Standing Rock, um, where, as you'll hear, for some reason you don't know the context, um, there was a months-long water protection of the river there from the Dakota Access Pipeline. At the time of recording, we had just come back. Christiana and I were back in her apartment in Chicago, and we reflected a little bit on our experience. I think that's pretty much all you need to know, so let's go back to Standing Rock from 2016. Welcome to Ergo, folks. I'm Kiss. A little bit of a different episode for you this week. If you don't know what we do, we showcase strong young voices from Chicago and beyond. Usually each week we sit down with a writer, organizer, poet, musician, rapper, singer, a person reshaping the culture of the city and the country for the more equitable and the more creative. This week, like I said, doing something a little bit different in the spirit of the holiday, Um, And also just because it's kind of the story that we need to be telling right now, I think uh, we're we're sharing some voices and some stories and some experiences about the occupation and space making happening at Standing Rock in North Dakota right now on the Sioux Reservation. Uh, You're going to hear my conversation with Ergo alum, friend of the show, organizer, playwright, Christiana Colon, um, who... You might remember from way back on episode 13, we're going to talk with Christiana about our experience uh, last week traveling to Standing Rock. And also, uh, there's this amazing project called Voices of Standing Rock. It's a podcast series. I strongly recommend you go subscribe to it now. It's on iTunes. It's also on Facebook. Just search Voices of Standing Rock. And they're short kind of five-minute audio portraits of different folks who have made their way to the camp and what brought them there and their thoughts and, and, and these beautiful snapshots of who these people are. Um, and we're lucky enough that the creators, including uh, Bill Prouty or Prudy, not sure the pronunciation, I believe it's Prouty, uh, said that we could include a few of those in this week's episode. So you're going to hear my conversation with Christiana and then a few of these beautiful pieces made by the folks at Voices of Standing Rock. If you want to get involved in the continuing occupation, um, one, get in your car and go. You know, we drove 14 hours, which sounds far. It really isn't that far. We were there and back in four days. um, And it was, as you'll hear, 
a game-changing experience, I think. Um, so show up. You can also check the Facebook page of the main camp. That's Ocheti Sakoen, which is spelled O-C-E-T-I space S-A-K-O-W-I-N. They're constantly posting new information, uh, sharing what's needed. Um, and they also there have info for how you can give money and supplies uh, from afar if you're not able to make it to camp. So check their page. Check out Voices of Standing Rock. Subscribe. Give them a rating of five stars. Hit us with that little five-star rating. You know, no big deal. Um, and enjoy my conversation with Christiana as well as some of these incredible audio portraits from Voices of Standing Rock. This week, we're very excited to be here uh, sharing some stories, some ideas, some experiences about uh, what's been going on on the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in North Dakota. In Damon's place, we went with a, with a close relative, which is about as good as you can get. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hey, I'm Christiana. Uh, she is a playwright and poet and artist and organizer and uh, you know an integral member of everything that we've talked about on this show through the first 68 episodes and all the things we've made. Uh, before we get into it, how are you feeling today? How is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? Um, I'm feeling fantastic. I uh, am a little sad that I'm not currently in a car on my way to Standing Rock, mm. which is what I thought I was going to be doing today. Um, but I'm happy to be spending time with family this week. Yeah, second second best, I guess, if you're not in North Dakota. Um, yeah, you know, supporting indigenous people, resisting, particularly on a holiday that celebrates uh, the myth yeah. of their non-resistance. So we'll, we'll get into into all that. And then, I mean, the, the main reason why we're talking here right now um, is because last week, the two of us, along with a few other folks, uh, went to the occupation um, and brought some of the supplies from Freedom Square um, and some other supplies that we gathered and then mostly just like learned about the space and figured out ways to contribute. Um, for those of uh, our listeners who maybe have seen some Facebook posts or, you know, have heard the name bandied about, um, what's going on out there? Yeah, there are several camps coming together, um, indigenous tribes from across the nation and across the world coming to uh, support the protests against the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, which would really compromise the, the water um, on this indigenous reservation. So let, let's go to before we got in the car to go. Uh like, do you remember the first time you saw anything about this or, you know, what kind of led you to the point where you were like, all right, we got to make this happen? Yeah. Uh, the occupation came on my radar while we were at Freedom Square and folks were starting to make the comparisons and, mm -hmm. and talk about uh, how the occupation as uh, a political tool was having uh, a resurgence this summer. Um, <laughs> We're bringing it back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so very early on, we had aspirations of traveling there while Freedom Square um, overnight occupation was still in effect. We had hoped to, you know, travel to um, Standing Rock and learn from the best practices of how to, yeah. how to, how to run your occupation. Um, from, they don't really do like seminars on it. Like, you yeah, no. Go, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sure someone does do a seminar and someone. I'm sure it costs a lot of money and I'm sure it's trash. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I think we um, found a new lane for us. Really bringing some profit. Yeah. <laughs> when you fully sell out, that'll be great. I, I don't know if I need to be teaching anyone how to do <laughs> occupation. <laughs> I think I just need to sit at the feet of the elders, which is what, uh, I really, uh, hoped to do yeah. in traveling there so even though it happened you know after overnight occupation ended at freedom square i think going there with a, a retrospective uh, view of what happened on holman and fillmore and seeing some of the resonances and similarities with what's going on at standing rock and just the texture of the place and the the organization of the space and then the things that are totally different uh mm 
mm-hmm. uh, in a rural landscape versus in an urban landscape. Uh, and when you have hundreds of years of ancestral tradition to sort yeah. of ground your accountability practices yeah. um, and just the tension between tradition and, um, you know, social progress. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I want to get into a lot of that, but I want to stay like before we showed up. And also like, this doesn't have to be an interview. Like you can ask me things. We can just bullshit here. Sure. Um, like what were some of your expectations coming into the trip? What did you kind of, when you pictured what it looked like in your, in your mind's eye, like what did it look like? Cause um, I, I kind of had kind of conflicting images of what it was going to be. Yeah. I just kind of imagined sort of transplanting freedom square onto a Dakota Plains landscape <laughs> and then multiplying, um, which in a lot of ways was true. Um, but I think what surprised me uh, in comparison of like what it was like in my imagination um, was the sheer scale of it. Like yeah. it was so much bigger than anything I could have imagined. Uh, and even knowing, like logically knowing an estimate of how many tribes are there and how many people were there, like actually seeing it and being um, in the midst of just how sprawling it was, uh, was still mind blowing. And then uh, I don't know if I'm just really ignorant, but like I didn't know that teepees were still a thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like in earnest, like not, not, I'm not like doing a teepee as like a a callback to like, (laughs) (laughs) but like, this is my actual crib uh, and I'm setting it up. Um, (laughs) Yeah. um, Native people uh, erecting and living in teepees and that being legit, like the warmest and most stable unit of housing uh, as folks are sort of buckling down and winterizing for the cold season. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we can't really paint a picture of what it looked like here. Like, it's just not possible because it, it is kind of unlike, uh, it just functions on so many different levels and it, it's tough to kind of depict it. But I'm going to give it a little bit of a shot. So you come over this hill and you just see this camp sprawling in this kind of, uh, it's very flat, like in between these hills, there's a valley there that just kind of sprawls and it's just full, almost as far as you can see of like tents and teepees and other kinds of like semi-permanent structures. And you come down the road and you're canopies, just canopies, canopy, yurts, lots of, yurts, yurts on deck, the yurts on deck, so <laughs> many yurts. And, and it's all dirt. You know, once you get off the main road, like it's, it's all just created right there uh, with no like pavement put down no permanent infrastructure in that way like it looks like people just put it up which they did and you come and there's signs lining the road uh and and you turn down the the main kind of drive into the camp and there's kind of a cursory security check where they have folks kind of looking in your car and like making sure you're not like directly in opposition (laughs) like you're not like wearing like a DAPL like polo performance (laughs) polo shirt yeah but even before you get to the checkpoint uh lining the the periphery of the camp is all these banners from different uh groups and tribes that have come different organizations who have come and contributed uh their visuals to the space from all over the world yeah so we saw north park university came (laughs) through with the banner um and i really uh wish that i had brought some of the banners from Mm. freedom square i don't know i was just nervous in general about like taking up too much space yeah and not, you know, coming with presumptions of um, what our presence would would mean. Yeah. Um, but to, to run with that, I mean, one of the things that was interesting watching as you come in and you come down this road and it's lined with the flags of all of these different nations from across the hemisphere, all of these different tribes bring their flag and they put it up and it creates your entryway into the into the space, you know, in making that that Freedom Square compar- comparison, and we talked about this a little bit afterwards, not really before, you kind of using this as a both like a learning opportunity, but also like just your role being different and not being in kind of that like formal leadership role or like the builder role, but being a contributor role. Like 
Did that take any getting used to? What did that feel like? No, it was such a relief. It's so much easier when you get to chop vegetables. (laughs) To not have to make uh, any decisions um, and really just be quiet. Um, You know, Freedom Square has been and continues to be a great lesson in humility. Mm. And uh, I think it was important for me to be in a space um, where humility and uh, deference and obedience (laughs) and service are really what is needed most from me rather than um, leadership and decision making. Mm. Uh, And so, you know, just being available and ready to use my hands in whatever way is useful um, was just such a relief and just made me think a lot about all the folks that volunteered at Mm. Freedom Square and um, how much labor and time and and care and generosity um, helped to to keep that space running Mm. uh, and wanting to contribute even like one iota of, of that um, in someone else's space was important to me. So we came in and we we drop off our donations. Uh, what, what we're bringing our supplies. That the we're donation tent was crazy. Uh, it was packed. <laughs> Basically everything. We're gonna keep making the Freedom Square. Compare. It was like Freedom Square equally as disorganized, but times <laughs> like seven thousand. Like it was enormous. I thought it was a pretty good system. One dude in there. Well, like, I mean, he needed help. <laughs> he didn't. Need, don't but, we all? But there, there was like an area on the floor for tarps, That's you know, true. like hygiene supplies were sorted, like things were sorted right. and the sorting operation was such a huge operation. Yeah. So we, we, we drop off our stuff and we walk into kind of like the main, uh, like main fire circle area. And we're kind of trying to figure out what's next. And of course we see immediately the first person we see Sojourner. is Sojourner, a friend and collaborator and huge part of, you know, leading meditation and, the early breathing rooms and doing all kinds of stuff. And she just was there and her face was just like the first face we saw. Yeah. Like emerging through the smoke. Like, like literally through the yeah, smoke. Yeah. It was so beautiful. And so to kind of cut the story short, basically she ended up uh, connecting us with a tribe that she'd been staying with. And we ended up staying in their, uh, in their tents and they took incredible care of us and we helped in their kitchen and, you know, hung out by the fire with them and, and, and all that. And so, I just felt even just from the first moment we saw her, but then through the whole time and seeing like how beautifully things lined up. I don't know. I'm kind of wrestling, especially in a moment where there's so much just horrific shit going on. Like how can I wrestle with this idea that things are like faded or supposed to be a certain way or whatever like that. And it, it, but it felt like that. Like I walk around this space and it was so overwhelming. Like the first two to three hours we were there, you're just kind of like trying to soak in what this is because it's unlike anything, even with the freedom square comparison, it's so different from anything you felt before. Yeah. it, It was incredible. I was overwhelmed. Like I wanted to cry like every five minutes. Um, and you know, really trying to not let my emotional um, overwhelmedness like paralyze me such that I wasn't being like Mm. as present and useful as I could be because we were there for such a short amount of time. Yeah. Uh, You know, and you can just sense that there is so much knowledge in the space. Yeah. Um, I believe it's the largest convening of indigenous tribes since Wounded Knee. So like Hmm. not something that will probably ever happen again in our lifetimes. Um, and I, I really just wanted to like go to everybody's fire and yeah. talk to all the different tribes and, and get, um, you know, all the different perspectives, what was going on there. But there was such little time that I was like, I yeah. just actually just probably need to <laughs> do some work. And cut, cut some carrots. Cut some carrots, peel some parsnips. Yeah. Root vegetables for the wind. But I do yeah. think like part of what I think that that impulse was super strong for me too. And I think something that they did well in the space was like create um, guidelines that like keep people from just coming in and being documentarians or keep people from just coming in and like trying to capture it without participating. Um, Like, I don't know, I guess I could have pulled out my voice recorder and started interviewing people immediately, but it didn't feel like sometimes, you know, when you're at a protest or whatever and like everyone's quiet and then the camera comes up and then everyone goes wild. 
Mm-hmm. It re like it felt like the opposite of that. Yeah. It's like if you can figure out a way to show some of this, you know, that's cool. But like that's really not what we're here for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, trying to figure out it was cool to see uh some of those structures be built, whether it was to keep people from, you know, being reporters and not contributing, whether it was to keep people from uh taking up space in other ways. Like some of that, like you said early on, it was rooted in, you know, they had practices and traditions and structures for like how you behave when you're trying to build community. And some of those felt familiar and some of those felt really foreign. And to participate, you have to come to terms with those or else you literally like just can't be part of it. Yeah, absolutely. Like making an offering of tobacco before asking an elder any questions, like tobacco uh, being sort of the um, ritual offering throughout the space. So uh, if you were visiting someone's um, campfire, uh, you know, with a tribe, because each tribe kind of had their own uh, campfire circle um, around which to gather um, with, you know, a space for offerings at the, at the fire. And so, you know, that ritual, I think was one of the great things that I took away from Standing Rock and just the value, um, of ritual in terms of grounding us in practices that are mindful. Mm. So whether or not, you know, the tobacco itself has any, uh, intrinsic properties, right. It is about, um, making the offering and making the gesture of honoring your elders and yeah. uh, that you have to contribute something or give something before you receive the gift of their wisdom. One of the other structures that they have, um, you know, the role, the gender roles are so clearly defined in a way that I think for, I heard other people talk about it and I think probably for both of us in different ways was an interesting thing to wrestle with. Um you want to talk a little bit about like what that process was and and your kind of uh, your relationship to that over the couple of days we were yeah, there. Yeah, it so <laughs> it was really it was one of the first things that Sojourner said. You know, when I asked her about how her time had been there, so within you know a few minutes of arriving, that issue of gender binaries came up. Uh, and it was one of the things that she said that she was struggling with in terms of how labor is divided in the camp and like. They really want the women doing like (laughs) traditional women's uh, roles in terms of uh, help and volunteering and labor. Um, They really want women in long skirts. And so if you came without a long skirt, they encourage you to at least tie something around your waist. They had a free store um, where, you know, they were hoping that you could pick up a skirt and put it on if necessary. Um, And then when those ran out, uh, some of the elders were actually making long skirts and dresses mm. to give away. And uh, our traveling buddy, Melissa, um, volunteered with the the skirt making department <laughs> for a little while. Um, and it was just amazing to see over the span. We were there like maybe 24, 26 hours, something like that. Over the span of that time to see... Um, there being an ongoing wrestling with and uh, negotiating um, these traditional gender values with um, some of the more like radical uh, gender perspectives that we see at the center of, I think, the protest movement in America right now. You know, I think Black Lives Matter is definitely uh, trying to center queer feminist um, leadership and organizing. And I felt a tension between uh, that organizing perspective and some of the traditional expectations around gender. Um, But I also felt very compelled to (laughs) be obedient and be respectful and honor those traditions. I mean, we are on people's ancestral land and they have maintained that land and held the connection to that land and their culture via maintaining um, these traditions. And I think that whether or not uh, we agree with gender binaries, that there is something to be um, respected there uh, because it didn't. And, you know, perhaps this is naive of me, but it didn't feel uh, oppressive. Right. Right. It didn't feel 
uh, um, to be about subjugation right. um, so much as uh, honoring the difference uh, and the necessity of those two energies and like right. uh, directing those energies with uh, the intention of like ancestral um, guidance. It was like the most divorced I've ever seen those roles from power before. Yeah. And that's like a tough thing to understand, even being there. But then, especially when you go back in the world that we live in, and whether it's gender or what, it's so tied up in like maintaining power dynamics and hierarchies. And this didn't feel like that. So one of the things that we did that was really moving, I know for me, and I think for you, uh, the next morning, uh, they do this water ceremony where uh, the group of women lead you know, maybe how many people you think a hundred people down to the water? Oh my goodness. I think it was more than a hundred people. A couple hundred people. Yeah. Down to the, water. The, the ceremony took three and a half hours. <laughs> it was so much longer we than compl- I expected. I completely it to be. lost track of time. <laughs> yeah. So they leave folks down to the water and the men, uh, line up along the sides of these makeshift the steps, the warriors. Which... <laughs> yeah. And the elders invite anyone to be a warrior. Mm. Which oh, I that was, was the, I didn't even catch that. Yeah. Um, and the other thing I want to just quickly say to complicate the idea of it being a binary, there were traditional gender roles, but it wasn't a binary. There were three roles. There were men, women, and two spirit folks. Yeah. So there was a whole camp, the two spirit camp that um, that flew the rainbow flag next to their tribal flag. Um, and so that was the, the thing that I found most remarkable um, is that on day one, we sort of got a lot of this information about um, the gender roles and the expectations around those at camp. Um, And then on day two, as we are gearing up to go down to this water ceremony, you hear the announcer around the welcome fire uh, say on the microphone, like, oh, and by the way, uh, Two-Spirit Camp, y'all can join the ceremony this morning. We want y'all to, like, please come speak at the microphone. Like, we need, if you want to be part of this, you have to participate. We're, we are making this space to participate, but you got to do it. So we go down to the water <laughs> mm-hmm. and the warriors line up on the side of these makeshift steps going down through the banks. They're to, like to, carved into the riverbank. Right? Yeah, into <laughs> the mud. And um, the women kind of line up and one by one, very slowly, very deliberately, they walk down these steps to the water. They take a pinch of tobacco, they throw it in the river, and then the water from the river is poured on their hand to wash it and then they drink the water. Um, and so what that meant from where I sat or stood uh, was I had this moment with hundreds of people where I took their hand, looked them in the eyes and said hello in a way that like wasn't in passing. It was quick, but it wasn't like we weren't going in opposite directions. Right. We were both present. We were looking at each other. We were like recognizing each other as human. And then very carefully and deliberately, I was passing their hand to the next person to make sure they were okay. And I had been really, you know, just in the wake of the election and everything, feeling this like distance from humanness. Yeah. <laughs> and I felt this about the whole space, but especially about that, it was this reinforcement of of valuing people as human and recognizing their humanity on an individual level as well as communally that just changed how I felt completely. Like I've said this to a lot of people. I've traveled a lot through this country and done a lot of road trips with a lot of different people. And, you know, you learn how to be smart. You like learn who goes into the gas station at two in the morning and who sits in the car by themselves and how do you protect (laughs) yourself? All those kinds of things. But I'd never like in a group felt scared the way I did getting ready to leave the city. Um, And, you know, I've been nervous and I recognize also that people relate to that differently because the threats are different for people. But it seemed like there was this, at least an apprehension that was shared about like, oh, we're going out into, I I think we like had to negotiate who's riding in which car differently driving through a Trump America and just, you know, imagining what it is to like get a flat tire or get pulled over at four in the morning, you know, on the great <laughs> expanse of red States. Yeah. Um, and, and that made me, climate. and that made me so angry. Yeah. Um, in addition to scared, it made, because 
I'm not really willing to forego the feeling that this is for all of us to share. Like that, that's like what, just particularly America, from, the country. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm not really the willing land. to be like, you know, no, we'll stay in our pocket and you keep yours. And we'll like that untenable balance, like in very like tense. I just, I'm not willing to say that our car isn't allowed to drive through that road. Yeah, no. <laughs> and so I was scared and angry. And then we got there and had this moment of affirming the humanness as like this sounds so corny if you're not there. I'm aware of that. Don't worry, listeners. Like no, I recognize this sounds corny. <laughs> I don't think that it's corny. I, I think that like we are so fragmented from each other and uh what uh, capitalism does what these systems of oppression does is like separates us from each other um you know perpetuates this myth of the rugged individual and that is kind of the foundation like this fear that is um you know <laughs> proliferated then we find the words <laughs> um via all these different systems keeping us so divided and anxious and scared that to be in a space where you know, you come into the welcome area around this fire and these organic like circles of greeting lines are just happening where there are nuns from, you know, Dominican there and uh, elders from a Canadian tribe uh, and all of these folks just milling around in a circle, but like very intentionally like hugging you or shaking your hand, making eye contact with you and not even saying hello, saying thank you. Like our first greeting yeah. is an exchange of gratitude and just being immersed in that pretty much immediately. Um, we don't get to connect to human beings yeah. like that very often. And I think that like at a very root level, um, it is a way to remind your spirit that we actually are connected, yeah. <laughs> that our fate is, um, you know, inextricably intertwined, that we cannot survive without each other. And I think that like that as a microcosm of what the occupation means overall, um, you know, is really resonant. Like what is so inspiring about Standing Rock is uh, the interdependency yeah. and the community building and just getting back to um, making sure that everyone in your tribe is okay and everyone in your tribe has food and has water yeah. uh, and feels free and has music and has art. And has a place too within it. And it belongs. I mean, it's just amazing to me how quickly that the rust shakes off when you start connecting with people like that. Like the first couple times you're like, oh, this is weird. This is weird. They're going to like look at me and laugh or whatever. The te At least for me, that's the anxiety is like, the kind of imposter syndrome of like, you don't belong here or whatever. Yeah. And then very quickly you get past that to the point where it just feels like, right. It's just like, this is how we should look at each other. This is how we should interact with each other. Um, and so it's not that when we got in the car and drove back, we were driving through the night again. It's not like the threats were any less real at the gas station at three in the morning. Um, but that anxiety that I had felt when we got in the car to go wasn't there. And if the whole feeling felt like that, I felt, I think, does that ring true for you too? Yeah. I mean, I think that human connection fills our spiritual wells. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you spend a day looking deeply into the eyes of strangers and it only takes a few seconds before you see everything that is beautiful about someone. And that, that is a very simple meditation, I think for, um, approaching the world and approaching our neighbors with goodness. Uh, and so, you know, having having that replenished inside of us, I think was the greatest gift of Standing Rock. And so, yeah, coming back, you know, you're like, no, I have my people. Mm. <laughs> I have my people and right. I am fine. Yeah, and we know how to do this too. I mean, that's also what the all those similarities meant for me between the Freedom Square stuff and this was like, we're in a lineage, we're in a tradition of resistance we like know, even if we don't know what we're doing, we're creating the same kinds of things. And this stuff is powerful. You know, that pipeline hasn't been built yet and may never be built. Yeah. Um, I mean, the resistance is not going to stop. <laughs> right. You know, and I mean, and it didn't feel it. That was pretty clear. Like 
again, it's not for the cameras. It's not to raise awareness. Like this is to protect that land and yeah. that water. There were tribes still showing up as we were leaving. Right. You know, structures being built. Compost toilets. I got to help make some <laughs> compost toilets because those porta potties will freeze in the winter. Yeah. Towards the end, before we got in the car to come back, there you can walk past the art tent where they're screen printing t-shirts and making banners. And you go up this ridge and there's some, a couple of flags at the top of the ridge. And from the top of this ridge, you can see the whole camp. You can see the river and you can see the blockade on the bridge that uh, has been created by, as far as I could tell, local cops, Bureau of Indian Affairs, uh, which if you don't know what the Bureau, Bureau of Indian Affairs is the federal governing body that manages relationships and resources with American Indian tribes across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a, yeah, do, do your Googles. <laughs> yeah. The <laughs> the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Yeah. So they, there's this blockade on the bridge that really all it does in effect is mean that anyone going to the camp has to take an extra 20 mile detour. Um, but it looks very foreboding and they have, you know, 50 cop cars or whatever, you know. If look- you know that there's a detour, right? So right. I think that what it does is for folks that uh, like the casual donator, right? The casual. You know, the, the casual water protector. <laughs> the casual water protector uh, who just heard about it and is like, yeah, I'm going to go. Um, who may not have, you know, the right. information of just like, yeah, just go around and this is the other route. Um, gets turned away and right. uh, and doesn't um, then there is a sense of mystique about like well what's happening on the other side you know what what is so scary that there is a, a blockade or a checkpoint where you get right. turned away yeah so you can see that and I couldn't help but feel looking at it like I don't know I think a lot of what I've been trying to figure out in general is what are some different models of strength that aren't rooted in power. Um, or different models of power that aren't rooted in violence. Mm. Um, and in the middle of the camp, from the moment you drive in, you can't see where the blockade is. You can't even really see like where the battlefront is. It's about, I don't know, a half mile to a mile away. Um, and there's another small camp there. But it feels so strong. Yeah. And it feels so strong in a way that is rooted in taking care of each other. And then you go up to the top of the hill and you see where this blockade is on one side and then you see the camp on the other and the blockade looks so weak. It looks so tiny against uh, this sprawl of humanity and just knowing what is happening on that campsite, like how many simultaneous moments of kindness, how many simultaneous moments of service, how many simultaneous moments of prayer and meditation and are happening being treated on one side for of them. Multi-generational trauma. There's, you know, counseling. Yeah. yeah. There's lawyers for the National Lawyers Guild. There's, you know, child, all kind. There's a school. Yeah, I heard there's a school. I didn't get to see the school, but all of that, you know, it just uh, in size and in scope dwarfs this little blockade um, that is this like the state showing its force, right? Like the only point of the blockade is to be intimidating and to harass these people. So we're recording a day after or a few hours really after that blockade became yet again a point of uh, violence. So some of y'all may have seen uh, this is we're recording Monday, so it would have been Sunday night. Uh, some of the folks we don't really know the full story behind it. Like went and tried to kind of move these two burnt out trucks that are part of the blockade, and they were attacked with tear gas and rubber bullets, water and cannons, and it's like freezing temperature degrees. out there. Yeah, and also there's like the physical piece of that, and then the tragic, brutal, violent irony of using water. Yeah. For violence against people yeah. protesting, and in the video you can water. hear them chanting uh, "Mini Wakoni," um, which is "Water is life," um, as as these water cannons are being blasted at people, and just like how <laughs> terrible and and ironic uh, it is to hear these protesters like not even like screaming for help or right. you know, but chanting um, as they are being attacked with these water cannons. So I, you know, I bring that up not to say like, you know, look at the sensational violence in that way, but I bring it up to say like, 
this is not symbolic, this action. This is about, and it's not for the cameras. This is about people fighting for the access to live. Um, so I'm excited to share with you through the rest of this episode some of their voices and some of their stories. Thanks again to the to the folks from Voices of Standing Rock for sharing uh, those with us. But before we we wrap up this part, any last like thoughts or ideas that you want to make sure get included about our experience or just how you're feeling in relationship to this? Yeah, I think the most uh, important thing or the most important point of comparison uh, between Standing Rock and Freedom Square and just what uh, what I am learning and what I'm trying to synthesize and metabolize um, is community accountability models and what it means um, for us to develop those collectively and how we opt into those or opt out of those uh, as we're imagining a world without police and imagining a world where uh, our neighbors and our family and our tribe is our first line of defense. Uh, and so at Freedom Square, you know, we didn't really have control over who walked up. <laughs> we didn't have a checkpoint. Um, and the agreements by which we were having folks abide, you know, in terms of behavior were the Brave Space agreements that like, you know, that me and my brother wrote and painted on a board. Uh, and so just the, the tension, the differences between me, you know, a 30 year old being the elder at Freedom yeah. Square and saying, hey, these these this, these are my accountability guidelines, like do them, um, <laughs> believe in them. Uh, you agree to them by stepping on this lot uh, versus what it means to be drawing on um, the wisdom of centuries of tradition uh, and ritual and elder wisdom and how we can both be innovating um, our ideas around oppression and acknowledging more nuances of the human experience and holding space for everyone and, and remaining connected to a uh, struggle that is bigger than the span of our lifetimes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm really just trying to think about that and, and how to thread those ideas together uh, for moving forward and uh, unifying the Chicago uh, liberation community. Um, because I think that that is one of the things that we are missing. We have a lot of tribes. We have a lot of tribes. <laughs> and we have no road where all their flags fly <laughs> and together. And we need a road uh, where all their flags fly together. Word. So let, we're going to hear from some of the folks uh, who have been at Standing Rock. Thanks again to Voices of Standing Rock for sharing those stories. Christiana, thank you for sharing your thoughts. And thank you for going on that adventure with me out there. Uh, and thank you for everything you make and everything you do. Yeah, thanks for talking to me. You can't corrupt me. Nope, you can't change me. Because me, I'm a Lakota. I'm a freedom fighter. That's me. I got history. I come from a warrior family that protect the people, medicine people. That's why I'm a warrior. I went to jail for my people. I got bloods on my hands for my people because that's how much I defend my grandkids. And I will fight for them till I leave this world. In my language, we don't cuss. We don't have no cuss words. That's why people, oh, it's not nice to cuss. Well, fuck you. It ain't my language. I'm going to use it. I learned it from you. In my time, everything was round. We never had problems because we were always in a circle. But they brought us square houses. Now everything's square. Look on the map, even our land is square. Now they made my grandkids' brains square. It's not a circle no more. You know what, before I was even born, my grandpa fought for me. They have a picture of him in front of the White House. My grandpa 
fought for the Freedom of Religion Act. So when I was born, when his first grandkid was born, they can sit there and pray freely. They don't have to be hiding, but that never came about. I still had to run and hide. None of this came about till 1970. I'm not talking 100 years ago. I'm talking my time here. I still couldn't sit there and pray freely till I had to get up and pick up a gun and fight for my rights. I fought in Wounded Knee in my community. I went to Washington, D.C. We had to use violence. We had to. We had to do what we did for them to recognize us, because we weren't even recognized as natives, Indians, until AIM came along, until we had to stand up and raise hell and let the people know we're still here. When I was young, I was out there, but today I'm old, so now I sit at my fire. Now they're fighting out there. Yesterday, some more got arrested out there. Me, I don't go out there no more, but if I have to, I will. And I know it's always a good day to die, but I don't want nobody. They're still young. They got a whole life ahead of them. I want them to live. I want them to continue to be up front. We don't own this land. Nobody owns grandmother. We're just here to take care of grandmother. We're connected with the stars. We're connected with the animal. We're connected to the earth. They can't get rid of us. We shall always live. We will remain forever. We're the caretakers of this land. We're the ones that knew how to live on this earth and knew how to take care of it. But yet, these people are out to kill the whole world. They don't care. They don't care what color you are. Like my grandpa said, tell them there's land up on the moon. They'll be up there. Sure enough, they went up there too. So they, they'll go and destroy that too. Look at the weather, they destroyed our weather. They just destroyed everything. I wonder where they came from. Are they of this earth? That's why they disrespect the earth so damn much. They don't care about their bloodline. Today, all they live for is how much money they can get, how life could be easy till they die. They're not worrying about how their kids are gonna survive in the future. There's a day coming, and it's coming soon, when you're gonna have to stand up and speak for yourself. Let's take our world back. Let's take grandmother back, heal her as much as we can for our future generation. We got to get rid of these fucking money-hungry, greedy people. Me, it's sad. I cry. You know, this is my... I come from here, and when I die, I'm going to go back to this earth. Why can't you just respect my, my grandmother, you know? Respect my, my ways, you know? Your ways don't work. Never gonna work, cause you got a money in front of you. You killed your God. How can I believe in somebody that killed their own God? And now you're to destroy us. My father, who was in a Korean conflict um, in the 82nd Airborne, a very strong individual, told me it took a man to cry. Um, because men have tears too, you know, they have emotions too. So why would you hide such a thing when it's so important? A real warrior is somebody who's in touch with his emotions. Somebody who's not afraid to show no matter who's around them that they have tears. I tell people that when you deny those tears as a man and you're too tough to cry, that you're actually denying Tukashila something he has gifted you with in this world because tears do heal people. They help you learn, they help you move on, you know, because when you stand up and you wipe those tears away, you can make a vow to yourself right then and there that you're not gonna be knocked back down by what may have put you down. I had a very harsh life um, as a child. Years later, I'm here in 2016, 44 years old, single parent of five children. This has been like a turning point in my life to show me a direction. So we're here for the long haul, my children and I. Um, it's basically 
the only place we have to go, we're homeless. So this is basically our home. So it makes the fight for me much more important. My name is Frank Archambault. My Lakota name is Wichi Toka Bianke. It means runs before them. I was named after my great-grandmother, who was a survivor of the Wounded Knee Massacre. And I'm from Sandy Rock. I grew up in a place called Little Eagle, just south of here. We've been up here for a couple months now, and my job is uh, security slash, you know, make sure nobody's hungry, and uh, just basically taking care of the people who come from afar. They had a council meeting uh, for all the Hukpapa Lakota. They had actually um, created a warrior society here for the camp. And um, they asked each individual who was there at that meeting um, if they were willing to take on the sacrifice of not just taking care of the people here, but when we leave here as well, to always respect our women, to respect our children, um, respect ourselves, and respect Uchimaka. So, and when they asked this question, they asked us to please step forward. So my son and I, we took that step forward and took on the responsibility of watching over the camp. It was emotional. My son and I, we cried together and we hugged each other. It's really something that makes you feel like a man. It makes you feel like a warrior to do stuff like that that are positive. And I told my son just the other night, we won't be remembered. We won't be brought up there to the front of the people and say, hey, these guys do this and that, but that's okay. You don't ever let anybody take what you did here from you. You always stand strong from this day on. Being Lakota, it's an honor to be that because I know of the fights and the struggles that our people have had and we're still here and we're not going nowhere. And I actually think a lot about my grandparents and the ones who went through so much back in the day um, to know that, hey, we're still here. Um, we, we still remember you and you, you're not going to be forgotten. It was predicted years ago that this was coming and that we were going to have a strong fight on our hands. And when it's all said and done and they've done destroyed the earth, can they really drink that money? Can they eat that money that they're receiving for all of this oil? That would be the one question I would like to ask those people who are in charge of that. We're not just doing this for our kids, we're doing it for everybody's children and their grandchildren. And that we're here for a purpose and that's to protect the water and we mean nobody, no harm. We're here in prayer. I will protect it at all costs if need be, you know, and I already made my vows. I went prayed at my dad's grave. I'm, I'm a part of the people. I'm not an outcast, I'm not anybody else, but I'm a part of the people. I'm in that circle of people, and that's all that counts to me. So, it makes me feel very proud. I know that when my life is through, I'll be able to cross that river because of where my heart is. You have to build that strength here and that courage, that wisdom, everything you need to do, that fortitude to be able to get across that river because what's on the other side is forever, you know, and you have to earn that. That's my belief. 16 years ago, I had this dream and my spiritual teacher, him and I were walking in this dream and on these canopies and teepees and tents were all these flags that we had never seen before. And I asked him in my dream, I kept asking him, what is this? Is it a big powwow we're at? And he said, no, I don't think so. I think it's something greater than this. Thousands upon thousands of people were lined up and they were marching in the four directions. And they were, had their drums, they had their flags, they were all excited. You could feel the energy of the earth coming through your body and it was just vibrating, making your body vibrate and shake with such unexplainable energy of peace and, and excitement. I didn't know what that dream meant till I came over that hill from Cannonball and I saw this camp 
And I pulled in here and I walked around and I seen all these flags from all these native nations. I realized this is the first part of that dream. My Lakota name is Wonase and it means buffalo hunter in our language. And I'm a Standing Rock Lakota. Really, I don't even have a position. I, I just come out here every day to help out wherever I can. Our priority at the moment is to winterize our camp. Winters here are, are, can be harsh, and a lot of the people that are here have never experienced the cold. There's a lot of activists here that have gone to other gatherings. But for our own people, it's like a first-time event here for us. Every day we start with a prayer. And we pray for the people of these oil companies and these corporations. We pray for them. We hold them in our heart. And we ask for strength to forgive when sometimes we feel like we're not strong enough to. We ask Tunkashila God to grant us the strength to forgive the blatant disregard for our Mother Earth and the waters of life. It was scheduled to go through way north of here, north of Bismarck, our capital city. But the people up there objected because it would threaten their water. So they just moved it down here, assuming that, well, it's a reservation, nobody's going to say anything. A lot of our elders and older people, we couldn't do it. It took the spark of the youth, the young people's willingness to step up and say, we've had enough, and then do something. And, and we're so proud of them. It's not just native nations. It's all across the earth. People are realizing that they don't have to put up anymore with the oppression that they've been feeling in their lives. And they're here. They're here. And there is healing, there's so much healing in, in people's lives that happen here because they've never ever been welcomed as they have here. This is life-changing experience for many, many people. I don't know, sometimes words can't describe things like that. People need to come here and experience for it themselves. To understand one another brings unity. We need to share our lives without fear, without judgment, and that will create unity that will be unbreakable. People are waking up and they're flourishing, they're starting to grow, they're starting to let go of all the bad things that happened to them. They're starting to be able to let it go. Live in the moment here and plan toward the future. The children have dreams and here they come and tell us their dreams. And the teenagers, they come and tell us their dreams. And the people that come from all these other nations tell us their dreams. And they're all very similar dreams. And there will be more. There's still more coming that will bring those dreams to us too. And say, hey, I'm here because I had this dream. I had this awakening in my life. And they told me to be here. Something in their soul told them to drop what they were doing and they came and the first things they all say is that there's a sense of peace here that they've never known in their life before and they're taking it home with them that spark is living in their heart their soul and their mind and their emotions now they're taking that home to their families to their friends this is the beginning of a change when all living things in the universe unite together. The 
as each one gets well and takes their place, that healing of the circle of life will come together and it'll be whole again and the world will know peace. Thanks again to the folks at Voices of Standing Rock for sharing those stories with us and allowing us to use them here on Ergo. Um, One last thing that we didn't mention in my conversation with Christiana, um, right as we were getting ready to leave, we were walking past one of the camps to the car and there was a gathering. We were trying to figure out what was going on and it turned into uh, basically an open mic the way that we do at events all over the city folks one by one having a chance to get on the microphone. And uh, really what they were doing was literally rapping. These are folks from all over the country. Um, Of the five that we sat and watched, all indigenous folks, one from Detroit, one from Sioux Reservation land, uh, a couple folks from all over different places. And there they are using this form, this open mic form, using hip hop in this way. You know, and there's people on horses and in the backs of pickup trucks and you know, cooking and digging holes for fires. And meanwhile, you know, people are sharing their thoughts. So it was kind of this amazing moment, bringing the pieces together one last time before we got in the car uh, and, and headed home. So I'm just grateful to have had the opportunity to go and to share these stories and these experiences with you. Keep supporting, uh, figure out a way to get there. It's not that hard. You can do it. And, uh, and we'll be back next week with another strong young voice from Chicago and beyond. Peace. Well, I could never imagine the pain in the mother's heart when life takes a turn for the worse and creators up becomes another canvas that will never be completed. I'm a few degrees away and a thousand times defeated. My energy's depleted, but I want to stand and fight. Swinging with the spirits that have traveled back into the light. I feel the tears and depression, fears and aggression, woven in society from years of oppression. The violence is normalized, silence is horrifying. Truth is denied, and the fact is that more are dying. You have to take